Yo, yo, what's up, everyone? You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Nando's in Miami, okay? Yep. He's uh, enjoying himself. I saw you. I saw you wiping the sweat from your forehead, so and I'm like, hot. he's definitely in Miami. Yeah. It's just I forgot like how humid it, it gets here. Yeah. So I'm a little sweaty. Uh, apologies to the viewers at home if it's like you know I'm just like dripping, you know, like an airplane. I've seen an airplane where they're just like they're just water is just falling out of his head. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm okay. So, I'll make it through. Uh, You'll make it through. We're going to have a great show. Uh, Megan Day will be joining us later to um, talk about a number of different topics, um, including, you know, leftism post-Bernie. Um, and, of course, uh, we'll probably want her to weigh in on what happened in Bessemer, Alabama, with the Amazon warehouse workers, uh, you know, voting to unionize. Unfortunately, they didn't have enough votes. Nando's going to do a deep dive on that in his Decode segment. And I'm going to talk about leisure, something that um, people shockingly enjoy, uh, and we need surveys to prove it. Uh, but I'm going to talk about the workplace uh, and how some Remote workers are definitely concerned about having to go back into the office. Um, so we'll unpack all of that and more. And then finally, if we have time to get to our SALT segment today, I'm really looking forward to debunking the talking points by a conservative who thinks, no, 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 people love to be classified as non-workers and they love not getting benefits because, hey, if you're a gig worker, you get to choose your own hours. Obviously, we have think, um, some thoughts on that. Yeah, I think she's invented a new category, which is woke conservatism. You know, yes, like, this is like yep. what this this article is an example of something that I'm going to call woke conservatism. You know, that's just it makes sense uh, absolutely yeah. because you know, and you guys will see why. I mean, she uses the framing of we're just looking out for women <laughs> right. as a way to convince people that. Doing away with workers' rights is the yeah. right way to go. But anyway, yeah. we'll get into a longer discussion about that later. Um, Nando, why don't we jump right into it? Um, let's talk a little bit about Verso and then get to your segment. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know that if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, books and merch, for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in April, you'll get four books. Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown by Matthew Lawrence and Laurie, Laurie Laybourne Langton. Terminal Boredom by Izumi Suzuki, a short story collection translated from Japanese. Prophets of Deceit, a study of the techniques of the American agitator by Norbert Guterman and Leo Lowenthal. And the updated paperback edition of Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life by Natasha Leonard. I mean, it's a no-brainer. $20 a month, you don't get one book. You don't get two books. You get four books for 20 bucks. Like, it's, it's, it's a good. deal. Deal of yeah. a lifetime. Check it out. Yeah. So, Nando, uh, we did get some bad news uh, just yesterday about the yeah. unionization, unionization effort in Bessemer, Alabama. And it's important to do a post-mortem. Jane McAlevey wrote uh, a pretty good one in The Nation. Um, but you've got your own well thought out produced segment on it. So why don't you jump into it? All righty. Yeah, it's it's tough because the results of the unionization drive in Bessemer, Alabama are in and they were a crushing blow. The no votes for the union outnumbered the yes votes by a margin of around two to one. And it was the latest example of just how weak labor is 
and how dominant capital is right now, especially Amazon. Yeah, I mean, we should read a lot into this. It does feel that Amazon is indestructible right now. I mean, find me a company that handled a union drive worse than Amazon did over the past few months. Uh, they've had employees, you know, basically sending uh, photos of them peeing in bottles on the job. Uh, they've dared members of Congress to v- provide proof, and the workers have come out and provided that proof. Uh, and yet they crushed the union in this effort. So it really just goes to show you uh, that the state of American labor right now uh, is pretty weak. And Amazon, I mean, that was the biggest challenge to them. Were they going to change the way that these fulfillment centers work? And it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case anytime soon. So if you're Amazon, you're in a pretty uh, entrenched position right now. So how did this happen? I mean, the unionization drive in Bessemer was unique compared to other similar campaigns in recent years and that it was so high profile. We saw major national politicians and celebrities go down to Bessemer. The campaign got the attention of not just left media, but the mainstream press and even cable news. And there was this feeling that given all the attention to the horrible working conditions at Amazon and the outpour of support from around the country, that maybe, just maybe, these workers could do it. And the truth is that the union campaign was likely doomed from the start because Amazon won a key victory early on. They were able to dramatically expand the size of the bargaining unit from 1,500 workers to close to 6,000. Are you surprised, not necessarily by the results, but that the results seem to be so much in favor by better than two to one uh, in favor of Amazon, not the union here? Well, I'm saddened, but I'm not completely surprised because of the kind of compromises that the union had to take in order to get to an election. They had to be willing to accept into the petition for bargaining unit a substantial number of employees that Amazon was pressing to include. These were seasonal employees. Seasonal employees are generally not considered part of a bargaining unit uh, for union election. But this was allowed. Otherwise, it would have been tied up in litigation for the better part of the year. And the longer it took for it to go to election, the more time Amazon would have had to work its anti-union campaign against uh, the union. But as it stands, it looks like they were effective anyhow. Now, it's hard to overstate just how crucial this was to thwart the union. Amazon used a Trump-era NLRB decision that made it easier for employers to determine the size of the potential bargaining unit. Expanding the bargaining unit is a classic union-busting tactic. The more workers you have to convince, the harder it is for organizers with limited resources and time to organize them. So this early decision was crucial in thwarting the campaign. But there was another structural advantage that Amazon had that wasn't as discussed, and it has to do with how Amazon compensates its workers. I'm not all that surprised by the vote. I'm a little surprised that Amazon is so far ahead, but I'm not surprised that they're winning. Uh, I think the primary reason I would point to is the Amazon stock price. And this is something that unions are going to run into at all of these big tech companies who, in part compensate their employees through stock benefits. Amazon offers uh, restricted stock units to most of its employees. Not all. You have to qualify for it. 
But if you've gotten those stock benefits in the last few years, look at the Amazon stock chart. Everybody's been focusing on the, you know, the hourly wage, and they do pay above the $15 minimum, which is all well and good. But where you can really do well at Amazon is getting in on that stock plan. And as long as the stock is going up the way it has, I think the unions are going to have an uphill struggle. And that applies hmm. to a lot of these big tech companies. Tying compensation to the stock price is a clever tactic. I mean, it sounds like a good little perk. But what it does is tie your fate as a worker to the company's success. So you're going to be very wary of doing anything that is against management's wishes. But despite all those massive advantages, Amazon still probably engaged in illegal behavior. Uh, Deidre, when you talk to Amazon about that mailbox, which seems to have become sort of a not just uh, a box unto itself, but a symbol given its location and, and all of the uh, the writing on it. Um, is there a real sense of why they wanted to, to to put that up, especially given, by the way, that the other side desperately didn't want them to? So I, it, it was confusing to me to well, see what the advantage for them could have been. So the idea is that if workers were to vote and put their ballots in that mailbox, they might think that Amazon has some hand in counting them. So they might be intimidated by, you know, a vote to unionize, handing that over to their employer, who is obviously against unionization. That is the union's argument there. Amazon, of course, says that they just wanted to make it easy for people to vote. But, Andrew, in the first place, this idea of mail-in ballots was controversial. Amazon wanted to see workers vote in person. The union argued for mail-in. So it goes back, and it's not just the mailbox. I mean, there was another incident, Andrew, where uh, Amazon had the traffic lights changed around the facility so that, uh, you know, it'd be harder for unionizers to canvas. So there's lots of little things like that. And we're likely to hear more as we get more challenges once we have the outcome. And this mailbox is at the center of the union's legal challenge against Amazon's tactics. This is from Alex Press's write-up. She writes, quote, that the U.S. Postal Service, at Amazon's urging, installed a mailbox on company property in time for the mail-in voting period is likely to be a focus of such objections. The company had argued for in-person voting but lost that argument as well as an appeal. The union may argue that this mailbox effectively served the company's purpose, allowing them to monitor voters or the votes themselves. As Applebaum said of the matter, this morning, even though the NLRB definitively denied Amazon's request for a drop box on the warehouse property, Amazon felt it was above the law and worked with the Postal Service anyway to install one. They did this because it provided a clear ability to intimidate workers. Hearings will likely follow from such objections with a resolution potentially months down the line. But despite all that, the result of the election remains a crushing blow. Jane McAlevey has a Bessemer postmortem in the nation that you should read. It outlines a series of tactical errors that are worth taking seriously, but I am not a labor organizer, so I can't really comment on the actual tactical questions. What I did take from her piece is that we know that in the United States, companies will engage in all kinds of nefarious tactics, both illegal ones and perfectly legal ones, in order to crush unions. That is a given. She quotes a book by a former union buster at length, She writes, quote, read Confessions of a Union Buster by Martin J. Levitt, published in 1988. The book is written by a former hired hand of employers. It's filled with swagger, as it should be, given how many campaigns Levitt helped destroy. In it, he tells the reader, 
quote, union busting is a field populated by bullies and built on deceit. A campaign against the union is an assault on individuals and a war against the truth. As such, it is a war without honor. The only way to bust a union is to lie, distort, manipulate, threaten, and always, always attack. Each union prevention campaign, as the wars are called, turns on a combined strategy of disinformation and personal assault. And beyond the unique nature of the United States' labor history, which is more violent and repressive than basically anywhere else in the developed world, the fact is that under capitalism, the deck is ultimately stacked against workers everywhere. As sociologist Michael McCarthy writes in Jacobin, quote, the way workers organized is through a union or other kind of worker association. Workers are first organized by a firm, their employer, which brings those workers together based on its own interests and goals. Unions face the difficult task of reorganizing them as workers with interests separate from the management of that firm. Simply put, business power doesn't require a new and separate organization, whereas worker power does. Second, a firm's calculation of its interest is straightforwardly defined. Profit. Firms that don't prioritize profit don't survive long in competitive markets. Conversely, a worker's whole life is attached to their employment situation, so they have a wide range of interests tied to that role. Because the full complexity of a human life can't be separated from the labor power they sell to their boss at work, the priorities of one worker at any given time can diverge widely from the priorities of another. Essentially, workers can only win through solidarity. But solidarity is hard to achieve when people are atomized and living in precarity, and that is the status quo for much of the working class, not just in America, but everywhere else. And since the neoliberal assault in the 1970s, union density has been declining. declining. Capital is on the march and is as utterly dominant as it ever has been. Under these conditions, it's, it's a miracle that any organizing campaign is successful anywhere. The problem is that there is no alternative. If we are to change anything, we need to be hyper-focused on labor power. Think about the myriad controversies that dominate the discourse on any given day. 90% of them are nonsense, pure noise, totally irrelevant in a world without labor power. But as bleak as things seem right now, one thing is certain. As long as workers are exploited, they will fight back. Even as workers in Bessemer, Alabama, suffered defeat this week, in Chicago, Amazon workers have been organizing for better conditions. Last April, a group of workers at DCH1, now known as Amazonians United Chicagoland, organized what they called safety strikes, demanding PPE, cleaning protocols, and other COVID-19 safety measures. People are getting sick, and we weren't notified about it. They were broadcast themselves on uh, social media, letting us, like, informing us themselves that they were sick or that they had the COVID. So we, like, we as a group decided uh, that something must be done. Amazonians United says its efforts were largely successful. Now their organizing has a new focus. Employees say earlier this year when they were told DCH1 was shutting down, they were also told their hours would be changed to shifts called megacycles, working 10 and a half hours from 1.20 a.m. to 11.50 a.m. Mothers have to be home with their children because, like, they have e-learning or they have to get them up in the morning or they have to make sure that, they, you know, that they're down for the night. I basically have medical issues, and I just found out three months ago that, I, that I'm, you know, that I'm a diabetic. So that's even that's interfering with like the schedule that I have to uh, to ensure that myself that I'm taking the medication that I need. 
Workers came up with a list of accommodations for people working megacycles, a $2 per hour raise, accommodations for employees who can only work part of the shift because they need to care for children or for medical reasons, rides to and from work, which they say the company provides in New York City, and full 20-minute breaks without managers cutting them short. On Thursday, Amazonians United Chicagoland announced that they had walked off the job. On Facebook, they wrote, quote, We are proud that most workers walked out today. Less than 10 stayed working. Some joined our rally for a bit. Some went home right away. But all of us were busting up laughing because by walking out, we put all the managers to work. Christ, laugh emoji. Y'all know Amazon, Amazon is always spying on us. They knew we were getting fed up, so they brought new managers in from all over today. Maybe they wanted to scare us. All we know is we made all of them sweat today. It's probably the first time they've ever worked. Our walkout today is us just getting started. Amazon thought they'd get rid of our union by shutting down DCH1 down. But nope, all they did was piss us off even more and help us spread from being at one location to now growing our union at multiple Chicagoland sites. Much appreciation for our community who came out to rally in support for our walkout. And to all of our fellow workers watching, join the struggle. Get it started at your site. Yeah. Nando, that was a really great segment. Um, and I like the way you ended it with, I think, important messaging about victories. Even if they're small victories, they're still victories. And that helps to galvanize workers across the country. So, um, you know, Amazonians are, are kicking ass, and I love that uh, attitude. The one thing I wanted to talk about is this very intentional effort by employers, obviously also by Amazon, to create division amongst its employees. And you brought it up in the context of stock options. And, you know, this is something that really started with uh, a board of investors at a company, for instance, ensuring that executives get paid with stock options so they have an incentive to cut costs, i.e. lower wages or just fire people, lay people off, in order to cut costs and increase profits. And now you're seeing it happen with, um, I guess, a, a larger body of workers in some instances, like with Amazon, for instance. But, you know, this is something that... Um, it's it's part of a very intentional effort, the, the stock options part, but it's not the only strategy that employers use. Another strategy that you've talked about actually uh, was implemented in 1945 with Taft-Hartley, and Jane McAlevey gets into it in her postmortem, where um, essentially if you don't want to pay dues – you don't have to pay dues to the union in some of these right-to-work states. Um, and that leads to these unions not having the resources necessary in order to, uh, you know, really fight and negotiate on behalf of the employees. Um, and definitely check out Bait and Switch uh, by Barbara Ehrenreich because she gets into this issue as well. In the segment that I'm going to talk about today regarding uh, surveillance in the workplace, I mean... The surveillance programs that employers use intentionally pit employees against one another in regard to performance. And so it's, it's just, it's meant to divide, divide and conquer. You're, you see it on a larger level with um, governance in America, and then you also see it within uh, the workplace with employers ensuring that, you know, workers aren't able to collectively work together and ensure that they have a better working environment, better pay, better benefits and all of that. So it's such an important issue to focus on. Yeah. And beyond that, just the, the presence of remote work for a lot of 
a lot of jobs um, discourages organizing because it's you know at least in the past organizing has always worked best when when workers are physically together kind of experiencing uh, the same harsh working conditions and are able to like discuss it amongst themselves in person face to face um you know it used to be when there was these huge kind of factories um like all the workers were just kind of like in there together and they all lived kind of in in the, usually in the same neighborhood uh right down the street from the factory and and that that bred you know kind of revolutionary fervor and that's just been kind of totally um eliminated by the nature of uh work and where people live and how how they kind of interact with each other and and I think that that's something that's 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 been a challenge for modern labor organizers and I think just in general you know the 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 leak, the, the fact that the law is especially in the United States is so onerous for workers I mean that's why like we did the segment on the pro act it would change it would change a lot of these things it's obviously very it's one of those chicken and egg things and it's very difficult to pass the pro act without labor power it's very difficult to get labor power without the pro act you know they kind of that's that's the vicious cycle that we're in um but yeah i mean it's just you you, you see it all over the place and it just look when you look at the numbers and you look at labor's declining share of income and you really get the f- sense that we're in a moment that is very much similar to the heights of the Gilded Age in which we had, mm-hmm. you know, these these just monopolists who had unbelievable amounts of wealth um, exploiting a huge mass of workers who were getting poorer and poorer every year. Um, a series, you know, just one series after another of economic crises um, in which the, the costs were always uh, born by by working people um, and every attempt to uh, organize a labor union back then was often put down very violently um, now they just use all kinds of you know clever nefarious tactics to to do it but that at some point that calculus has to change the the, the dip has to change and it you know it can happen very quickly once once something happens like some event some these things can spread like wildfire. So we just have mm-hmm. to keep pushing. You have to keep going. It seems very bleak. Sometimes it, it is very bleak and it could always get worse. But you just got to keep pushing because when it does turn, the activity is often very, very quick. I mean, we saw just how quickly um, labor power expanded in the 1930s at the height of the Great Depression, which was just, you know, the, the bleakest era. Um, all of a sudden, All of a sudden, there's this kind of raft of, of, of labor organizing that 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 really took the entire country by storm um, and changed the world really um, so uh, mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where it's 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 very bleak right now we live in an era of total capital domination um, and we just have to be focused on that like I mean that's just that to me is like the lesson uh, after all of uh, all of this in, in in Bessemer is that like this is the fight this is the fight yeah all the other fights that we think we're having are nonsense. There's just so much nonsense out there. Um, and it's just a waste of time, energy, resources, everything. It's just, it's, it's completely useless. The vast majority of the fights people get into on Twitter, the personality differences, like, oh, do you like that person or do you like that person? Or, you know, is this person good or is this person bad? Or, like, this issue or whatever. Like, without labor power, none of this, this is all just noise. This is just shouting into the void, you know? They all yeah, washed yeah. away. All those tweets are washed away like tears in rain, like uh, Blade Runner said. <laughs> so, yeah. 
You know, and I just want to add one more thing because when you mentioned, you know, they'll, they'll usually be one major event that, that changes everything. I don't know what that event is going to be, but if you look at the broader picture of what's happening economically right now, on one hand, you have workers who are getting poorer and poorer. They're losing more and more of their rights, uh, their benefits, all of that. And then on the other hand, you have an issue with housing, right? Like I, I, this story that was published by the Wall Street Journal this week, you know, we talked about it on TYT. I really recommend that everyone read it because what's happening is you have these developers, these are the builders, right, who are building entire communities with houses and everything. And what do we hear over and over again about the housing crisis? Oh, it's because we have a lack of inventory. There is a lack of inventory, right? But don't make the mistake of thinking that developers aren't building houses. They are. It's just that now they're building entire communities and selling the entire community to uh, wealthy investors, right? And what, what do the investors do? Well, they're not interested in, they know the market's going to crash. They're not interested in selling those houses. They're interested in putting them up for rent. And so that limits the amount of homes that, you know, couples can buy, like as their starter home. It leads to all sorts of issues. But what do they also do with the rent once these investors are invested in these communities? Uh, they have incredibly expensive rent. They don't have any intention of lowering it. Workers are making less and less money. Keep in mind the investors are over leveraged. We don't know to what extent, but they're over leveraged. They took out a ton of debt in order to buy that entire community. And so what happens when people can't afford those apartments? I mean, it's it's just a recipe for complete and utter disaster. And it goes to uh, the argument that I think is important about how capitalism, especially late stage capitalism, is full of all these contradictions that eventually leads to a complete and utter collapse. And I think we're headed for a collapse that we haven't experienced before. You know, um, because you look at the Gilded Age, I love that you mentioned that, and there are so many parallels. I mean, yeah. in the lead up to the Great Depression, what, what, what was happening? People were taking out a tremendous amount of debt and doing all these risky investments. And then there was panic and people, you know, started selling in the stock market. It led to complete collapse. And it's, it's something very similar is happening right now. Um, and obviously, you can also see it with the trends uh, regarding inequality. Um, so I, I, we're in for it. <laughs> we're definitely in for it. And I don't know if that's going to be the event that leads to the change that we need. But I think that you're right in not getting too down about what happened in Bessemer. Um, it's a battle in a larger war, um, and the war continues. Yep. Yeah. The war continues. No other choice. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about something that's giving workers, uh, white-collar workers specifically, a lot of anxiety, and that is the quickly approaching date of having to go back into the office. White-collar workers who have been fortunate enough to keep their jobs throughout the pandemic by working from home are apparently dreading the increasing likelihood that they'll be asked to return to the office very soon. In fact, there have been multiple surveys on this. One of the surveys I came across this week was done by a staffing agency called Robert Half, and they found that 30%, 34% of work-from-home respondents say they would rather quit than return to a full-time office job. Now, there are some who are willing to negotiate, uh, maybe split their time between the office and home. 49% said that they would prefer a hybrid work arrangement, dividing their time between the office and another location. 
And when you look at the people who actually want to work from the office full-time, it's a smaller percentage. Only 25% wanted to return to a full-time office situation. Now, for anyone who's held an office job, it's not that difficult to understand why workers would want to continue working from home. There are lots of downsides uh, and unbearable characteristics associated with working inside an office, right? You feel like you're being surveilled and watched. You feel like you're being judged. Uh, you have to obviously wear pants and you can't be comfortable. I mean, these little things, but you also get to avoid a commute, which means you get to save some time. But at the very heart of what most respondents found appealing about working from home is just finding more time for themselves, some more free time. So the most important aspect uh, that the surveyed employees mentioned is the freedom. Above all, that means freedom to set their own office hours. So again, not having to deal with a commute uh, suddenly meant that people like me can just end my workday and go for a beautiful walk before it's too dark to do so. Got to enjoy my neighborhood. I got to spend more time with my family. And many of the respondents felt the same way. But I think it would be a mistake to think that employers wouldn't find a way to make your work-from-home experience unbearable as well. In fact, some of them already began surveilling their employees around the start of the pandemic. Many companies that existed pre-pandemic have already developed software to track employees in a variety of ways. There's ProtoScore, HubStaff, InterGuard, TimeDoctor, TerraMind, VeryClock, Transparent Business, and many others. And unsurprisingly, the monitoring wasn't just intrusive and annoying. It's been downright creepy. ProtoScore alone has seen a 600% uptick in interest from prospective customers since COVID-19. Recently, CNBC's Eric Chemi spoke with its CEO. We take a number of data points, be it a CRM tool that they're currently using, a phone system like a Vonage, an email system, it could be G Suite or Microsoft 365. We aggregate all those data points in a real-time proprietary dashboard that provides them a weighted score. We record and transcribe all your phone calls. Well, everything I say on the phone is transcribed. So we now recorded. All of it is recorded. We use AI tools to massage that into a real-time score that you see, as does your boss and the CEO and the VP of sales and the chief revenue officer, everyone is seeing the productivity. Every morning you come to your desk, you have an email from us. You have your productivity score, your proto scores on the first line of the email. Your score yesterday for proto score was 74. Your colleagues were 90. They've done more. And it's a tool that you could gauge yourself against your peers. It's incredible how much they intentionally pit you against your colleagues, against your fellow coworkers, uh, basically putting you in competition with them. And of course, the underlying message is if you're not as good as your employees or better or good as other employees or better, uh, you you might get fired. You might lose your job. You might not get um, an increase in your wage, increase in your salary. Uh, you might not get a bonus. I mean, it's all really fear-based when you think about it. And at the very heart of what they're doing with that type of surveillance is ensuring that you don't see your fellow coworker as as your peer. You see them as competition, an enemy, someone that you need to beat. Um, and that makes it a lot more difficult to uh, maybe work together with them in order to form a union or ensure that you have 
have some sort of collective bargaining. But anyway, moving on, um, there was one nurse that was interviewed uh, in this video who talked about how, you know, at first, you know, working from home, doing some of the stuff that she had to do while she was in the hospital was kind of great. But then the technology was implemented and she went from loving her job to, well, let's take a look at what she had to say. For one registered nurse in Arizona, the implementation of new tracking software at her job with a major U.S. healthcare company had a huge impact. About a year in, they switched over to this real-time energy. So instead of going per case, it was per amount of time that you were actively working. And they knew exactly when you started your computer and you locked in, how much time you were on the phone. Everything was marked, counted. One of my, my friends said, I'm quitting. This is micromanaging. I just, I'm not going to do it. And I thought, why are you getting so angry? Because if you're doing your job, it should measure out. But then got my one and one, I got in trouble because I had too much non-productive work. I didn't move my mouse or I wasn't, I, I had too much lock time or something and I got in trouble. And that, that upset me because I know I'm a hard worker and that shouldn't have happened. The conclusion of all of this is that I left my job. <laughs> it just, um, it was just too stressful. Yeah, it is too stressful. In fact, working from home has significant downsides when you also think about the fact that your own private space, the place that you go to for for comfort, refuge, is now constantly blasted on Zoom meetings. Uh, that's part of the reason why I have this backdrop, because... As much as I love you guys, you don't need to know what my place looks like. This is my home. I like to keep it private. But moving on, there are other downsides to working from home as well, as Luke Savage wrote in Jacobin. With much of what was once the public domain already cannibalized amid decades of neoliberal onslaught, such a shift would herald a new and even bleaker phase of capitalism in which the homes of ordinary workers themselves become de facto commodities captured by private actors and used to generate profit. I mean, we're already seeing companies like Uber doing that with people's personal vehicles, right? They're not buying a fleet of cars in order to have drivers work for them. They're just relying on their workers literally footing the bill for their own vehicles in order to work for them. Um, and as some may have already noted, remote work often leads to feeling pretty disconnected from coworkers. With the final traces of human warmth and casual social uh, interaction stripped in the name of market efficiency, relations between employees could also be radically depersonalized. A worker who never leaves their house or apartment is less likely to spend time talking to coworkers or sharing a private joke at the expense of a manager, let alone developing the kinds of relationships that allow people to organize and alter the conditions of their work. And who exactly ends up paying for the infrastructure necessary to work from home? And I'm not just talking about rent. I'm also talking about the phone bill, uh, the internet bill, everything that you need in order to do your job from home. All of those costs get transferred over to you, the worker, with I'm sure a few exceptions. Maybe some companies will reimburse you, but Overall, what we're seeing in this trend, this new work from home trend, is that most of the costs, most of the burdens are transferred over to the employees. And look, the truth of the matter is working from home isn't the solution to counterbalance the unbearable nature of working in the office. When we really think about it, when we take a step back and think about what these survey respondents uh, said was important to them, 
it was free time. It was freedom. It was the ability to um, enjoy a leisurely part of the day without being stuck in a commute or without being overwhelmed with too much work. Keep in mind that some people who have been working from home have had a difficult time figuring out when to stop working because everything is in one space. So you might actually end up working harder and longer unless you have some way of kind of setting a boundary and stopping your work day to move on to something that's not associated with work. And that was a difficult uh, thing for me to kind of learn throughout this process as well. The real issue here is that workers don't really get a say regarding what their workday is like or what their work environment is like. I mean, in the context of this discussion and the surveillance that's happening for remote workers, technology is a negative thing. Technology is used against workers, but it really does not have to be that way. When you really think about it, if you have a a democratic socialist society where workers have the power to vote on how they use technology, you could actually use technology for good. It could actually increase the amount of free time and the amount of freedom that workers really have. In fact, the legendary Richard Wolff talked about this on the Michael Brooks show in regard to uh, automated, uh, or I should say robots, essentially taking over the jobs of employees. Take a look. If we have a technical change that allows things to be done with less labor, that should be good news for us. It should be, and it could be. (laughs) But the decision now is going to be made, oh, we don't need as much work to produce 100. We only need half. Everybody works half day. Nobody's fired. Nobody's fired. The wages are the same. The profit is the same because he's getting 100 units, selling them for a buck, and paying his workers, and whatever profit he got before, he will get now. The gain in the technology will then be the leisure of the majority, the employees. The leisure of the majority of the employees. That's the kind of world that we could live in. But what you would need for that is to reject this capitalist system um, and move toward democratic socialism where power is shifted from a few at the top to the actual workers, the very people who generate the revenue, who make the products, who do the work that's necessary to make these companies successful. And Nando, the the part that was kind of heartbreaking about the Bessemer uh, vote, uh, you know, they failed to unionize um, the Amazon workers in, in the Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, is that, you know, when you really think about it, the, the whole point of forming a union is to give you more power as a worker, to negotiate better working conditions, to negotiate for, for better pay and benefits. And, you know, we talked about how as disappointing as it was for, for Bessemer to not unionize. Um, it's, it's just one battle in a larger war. But it is important to take note of what could be and why it is that this is a much better model than what we're experiencing right now. This isn't about which environment you want to work in. This is about power. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's interesting because, um, thinking about your segment, I just, I, one of the ironies of our time is that we have all this technology that really should, free us from a lot of meaningless work. But ironically, we're working longer hours than we were in 1970, for example. Like in 1970, Americans were working much fewer hours than now. Actually, Americans work more hours than 
the rest of the developed world, like any other country. We work more hours than the Japanese, more hours than the Spanish, more like we work more hours than, than the rest of the developed world, even though we have all these, all the the technological amenities that we could ever want. Um, it's the irony of, uh, of, of our modern time that we just like are never off the clock. I mean, that's part of it, right? It's just that we're, we're like not involved in, in any of these uh, decisions from management over what hours we work, when we work, how we work. It's just, they, they impose it and we're pressured to work longer and longer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, emails all day and night. Uh, and then it's not only that, it's like the multiple platforms that you're forced to use that give your employer constant, like just constant accessibility to you. Like it's Slack and it's just like all of these things that are happening at once. And there's a lot of coercion involved, right? And it's not yeah. as explicit, but it's it's there. And it's like, if you don't respond right away, you feel like your job is being threatened, right? Like you're, you're doing something wrong and not getting back to them right away. And then I think for media figures as well, and look, cry me a river, right? But there's the added stress of constantly having to be on Twitter to opine on whatever the news is, right? Something breaks late at night. Like, what are your thoughts on that? How come you haven't chimed in? And it's, there's a lot of stress involved with that as well. But yeah, we're, we're working longer hours, more of our days getting sucked up by our jobs and we're making less. That's, that's the thing. Productivity goes up, work hours go up and pay goes down. Um, and it doesn't have to be this way, it, but it is this way because workers don't have a seat at the table. One of my favorite things is when like a, some like woke tech company will be like, we don't have a vacation policy. You know, our vacation <laughs> policies, you take whatever vacation you think is appropriate, which of course means that yeah. when you don't have a vacation policy, the de facto policy is no vacation because of like what you said, mm-hmm. the social coercion um, that, it, that, you know, like if you're, your boss will be like, oh yeah. Sorry, I just hit my mic. Oh yeah, go take that vacation. <laughs> take it. You know, see what happens. You know what I mean. Whereas, I mean, the real progressive uh, policy would be mandatory vacations, right? Um, it's just we we flexibility is a poisoned chalice. This idea that flexibility is a good in and of itself is a way to really sneak in precarity. You know, what really is, what really allows people to take control of their lives is security and regularity and mandated time off. You know, this idea Mm -hmm. that you can work whenever you want really means you're going to work all the time. I mean, that's what it means. You know, every time you take something off, because it's on you, you know, you're always thinking in the back of your head, oh, like... There's the anxiety of like, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should, the boss, the thing, you know, like maybe, maybe I should just keep, instead of like the, the, it's the regularity, like, you know, you clock in at this hour and you clock out at the hour and that's it. And they can't, yeah. they can't tell you what to do after that. Like that is what really leads to like an empowered life. The, the, the flip side, the, the sort of this idea that you can just like, oh, pick and choose your hours and, you know, pick and choose your vacation and you can come in whenever you want and the thing, you know, like that. That is actually just a recipe for anxiety and for working literally all day and all night. Yeah, I love the idea of mandated vacation time. Like, you have no choice. You have to take this time off. Have to take it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that makes a lot more sense. And that is more progressive because 
then it doesn't make the employee feel super guilty when they take a much needed break, you know? Um, so again, like I, I love working from home now, but I'm not being surveilled by my job. Right. And, and I, I, you think. I had to like, take comrade Bosker well, is like, you know, I, you know, he's got like his old Stasi thing and he's, you know, he's just sitting there, you know, listening. I, 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 I'm not, I know what's I'm not going worried on. about Bosker. I'm worried about Kale. No. Like Kale is, okay. you know, he's on it. He's on it. What, okay. what are you guys going to write about? Huh? Like Wednesday, you get that text message and it's like, Oh, how does he know I'm not writing yet? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, I, I, it, this is, again, this is about power and you need that power in order to fight and have the ability to fight, by the way, for the free time that you want. And, uh, that free time is just so important for a number of different reasons. Like what I loved is that I had more time to just read whatever I want to read, like read books that have nothing to do with the show, right? Nothing to do with anything. It's just stuff I want to read for pleasure or the ability to spend time with my brother and my nieces. It's just, it's made my life so much better. Uh, but that could easily be taken away if you're working from home for a company that's just going to surveil, surveil you like crazy. And I have friends who are experiencing that right now and it's tough. So anyway, is Megan with us yet? Yep, she is. All right, why don't we move on to our interview for the day? And joining us is Megan Day from Jacobin. Megan, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you guys? Good, well. good. Um, I'm really happy you're joining us today. Uh, let's start off by just getting your thoughts, um, your reflections on what took place in Bessemer, Alabama. Um, as our viewers know, the uh, warehouse workers at Amazon had a uh, union vote, and unfortunately, they didn't have enough votes to unionize. Um, any reflections on that? Yeah, I mean, I was listening to what you guys were saying, and I'm in complete agreement pretty much. It's it's um, it's not good news. It's also not entirely unpredictable news. If you, I would recommend that viewers take a look at an essay by Chris Maizano in the newest edition of the journal Catalyst associated with Jacobin. Mm. Um, it's called Labor's Double Bind. Um, and the point that Chris is making essentially is that in order to get employers like Amazon to sort of like change the balance of power so that employers like Amazon can't handily crush a union drive like this, you would need something like the PRO Act. But in order to pass something like the PRO Act, you would need a labor upsurge in order to flex its muscle, because obviously the political situation is not amenable to that right now. So hence labor is double bind. Um, That's why we can say that it's not entirely predictable. But of course, people are down about it. um, And I think that's understandable. But I also agree with Nando that um, it's not the end. This is not like the final, mm, this is not the final word on the question of organizing Amazon. Uh, Amazon's the white whale now. Like organizing Amazon is the most important um, task for labor, but it's probably not going to happen first. I mean, I think that there's a lot, like there's a lot that labor can do in the meantime to build up its muscle and build up its capacity. And that, that includes not just building the labor movement itself, but also making political inroads and advances so that we can actually pass laws that make it more difficult for Amazon to wage the kind of aggressive offensive that it was able to wage. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the New York Times changed their headline. Did you guys see this? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so Am- at first it was Amazon defeated the Union Drive at the Alabama warehouse. Um, that um, was 
changed. Who knows why? I mean, we can speculate, right? Maybe an Amazon PR flag called them and got mad. Maybe maybe an editor simply wanted to reflect their own opinion of what happened. But it was changed to Amazon workers appear to defeat Amazon Union Drive at, at Alabama Warehouse. Um, and then it was changed actually after that to Amazon workers defeat. So they got rid of a peer and then they actually changed it to vote down, I think to emphasize the sort of democratic nature of the workers decision to reject the sort of like lifestyle choice of having a union. But you can see the sort of migration of meaning over the course of those headline changes from this giant corporate Leviathan used its considerable power to crush a drive, uh, to crush a union drive initiated by workers to Something that sort of implies that the workers like gave two options equal consideration <laughs> and um, and sort of thought thought about it and then decided that unions really just weren't for them. Um, I thought that was a, an interesting case study. I wrote an article, a quick blog post about it at Jacobin yesterday, um, which people can read if they want to see my thoughts on on how this is like classic uh, anti-union corporate PR. Um, but yeah, to your point, I mean, we should, we should underscore. Oh, so apparently the union does have a couple of different avenues that it can pursue to like get another election, um, to happen. We'll see if that happens, but let's say they exhaust all of their options and, you know, nothing comes of this. I think we should be very clear about the fact that Amazon crushed, Amazon busted the union. It's not like the workers yeah. then like kind of like thought long and hard about it. And in a neutral fashion decided that they didn't want a union. Um, you know, you guys listed all of the stuff that Amazon did to, to crush this union drive. It's considerable, very impressive range and intensity of tactics. Uh, so that's that's my two cents is that we're really up against the corporate Leviathan here. Yeah, I mean, you couple that you couple, you know, Amazon's uh, ability to crush the union with Amazon's ability to just like overturn laws in the Seattle City Council, its ability to launch a recall campaign against Krishama Sawant. I mean, it just it really is like, you know, you can imagine some sort of sci-fi dystopian future in which like they own up the entire world, um, you know, and that we just can't, we just can't do anything about it. But um, I, I wanted to ask because I think that in the wake of something like this in Bessemer, um, you know, it is true that it is a crushing defeat. On the other hand, it is also true that it is, we have not seen such a high profile labor campaign like this in a long time. And it is also true that we have not seen the president of the United States weigh in even as meekly as Joe Biden did uh, uh, on, on a labor campaign in a long, long, long time, many, many decades. It does feel like there is some sort of difference now than say 10 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. Um, and that's, this is not just reflected in the, in, in the recent events in Bessemer. It's reflected by the size of, of Joe Biden's uh, stimulus package. Um, and, but, 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 but I, I just, I, I get the sense that, you know, on the one hand, we want to say like, no, 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 nothing's different. But on the other hand, it's something is different. And I, I don't know how to like sort that out. Could you like sort that out for me a little bit? <laughs> yeah. On the union front, I mean, there's a there's a larger conversation to be had about the Biden administration and like what we can say has changed about American politics, which I hope we'll get into. But strictly on the union question, I don't think we should overlook the fact that Joe Biden weighed in and said that he hopes that um, workers there can have an intellect, uh, have have an election that isn't interfered with. Um, yeah, that's unusual. Um, I, I think that probably more than anything reflects 
public opinion on unions, which has spiked in recent years. Um, it's at its highest point. I've written about this a few times for Jacobin. I'll see if I can dig it up if we could put it in the notes or something. But uh, union, uh, public support for unions has been climbing. And in fact, public support for unions was sent really through the roof by the Red for Red teachers strike wave because it just touched so many people. And, and those teachers who went out on strike in 2018 and 2019 did a really good job of connecting their own struggle for you know higher pay and better working conditions to what they called students learning conditions the kind of slogan was our working conditions our students learning conditions and they did a really good job building public support and buy-in <clears throat> for those for those uh for those uh, strikes and that has apparently uh made unions much more popular in the united states i think coupled with a lot of other things for example like bernie sanders's presidential campaigns and just the kind of presence of progressive and left-wing um, politicians on the political stage as well. So that is something that I think we can say is shifting. Um, I'm not going to say that the only reason that Joe Biden said that is because he wanted to pander to people, but I think that's probably a big, big part of it. Um, but it's not just unions, right? Like, I, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about how, how we should regard the rescue plan, for example. I mean, clearly something is is changing, right? Right. So let's talk about that a little bit, because what's obviously been frustrating to people paying close attention is this comparison uh, of Joe Biden being just like FDR. This is the new FDR. What he's doing is so incredibly progressive and so pro-worker. Um, but really what I see happening is just an infusion of, of proposed money as opposed to um, real systemic change. Can you talk about that a little bit? That is exactly right. So first of all, infusion of proposed money is not nothing. Um, you know, austerity is one of the main planks of neoliberalism. Uh, we have had, you know, ever since the Reagan era in particular, a kind of like race, a bipartisan race to see who can be the most sort of crushingly austere as a sign of like maturity and pragmatism in American politics. Um, so, you know, that the fact that people are not only talking about, but actually implementing new policies that show an increased willingness or openness to social spending is not nothing. That's actually important and good. Uh, one thing that's been uh, disturbing, though, is, is the way that people, yeah, have compared Biden to FDR, even, even Lyndon B. Johnson with his Great Society initiatives, because those actually created new permanent universal social programs. Some, I mean, in the case of FDR, some of them were not permanent, but, you know, entrenching or, or changing the way the relationship between the state and the populace by creating new intermediaries, new programs that are facilitated, that are set up to facilitate the transfer of public money to, um, to people, to working class people permanently in many cases. Um, that's not what we're seeing here. Um, and so I don't think that we should be making that comparison unless, for example, um, the child tax credit gets, um, you know, implemented permanently. And then we can start talking about that. The other thing that I think is pretty um, ridiculous on the face of it is, is um, overblown claims about the sort of death of neoliberalism, the end of neoliberalism. I think that we can say that something is changing, especially on the question of social spending, without saying that neoliberalism is coming to an end. And one important point that we need to make is that austerity is only one of, you could say, like four main planks of 
neoliberalism. So the others are privatization, um, deregulation, and opposition to organized labor. And I'm not see, we're not seeing nearly as much budging on the other ones. Certainly, um, you you see some gestures toward um, you know deregula deregulation and an occasional like kind word about, for example, the union drive in Alabama from the. Biden administration, but I don't see any movement on the question of privatization, for example. I mean, is the Biden administration really going to start talking about implementing Medicare for all and decommodifying our health insurance system? I don't think so. So um, I think we would be jumping the gun to um, conflate an increased openness to social spending with the end of neoliberalism. And if anything, we can think about this materially and we would conclude that certain segments of capital actually want more social spending because they want workers to have more purchasing power because they're experiencing downturns themselves because of the pandemic. Obviously, some segments of capital are profiting enormously from the pandemic, but others, you know, are, are struggling and they want more circulation of money so people will consume more. Um, and so I don't think that, you know, this is a sign. I think that the rescue plan is large. It's like, I think, twice as big in like GDP terms as um, as Obama's 2009 stimulus. And I think that we should acknowledge that. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure that it really um, uh, is a harbinger of a sea change in um, the question of neoliberalism and also just sort of like servility to corporations. Yeah, you know, for me, when, when I take a more holistic approach and trying to analyze where the Biden administration is, I can't help but notice the messaging regarding um, foreign policy, the messaging regarding countries like Bolivia and Venezuela. And so, you know, neoliberalism um, essentially has led to uh, U.S.-led coups in these types of countries with the sole intention of uh, privatizing nationalized industries uh, for U.S.-based multinational corporations. And so with Biden continuing with that pattern, it just really does communicate to me that there is not a shift away from neoliberalism. If anything, you know, what we're seeing so far by taking a holistic approach with the Biden administration is just a continuation uh, of neoliberalism with this facade of progressivism and, you know, honestly, incredibly embarrassing punditry regarding uh, Biden being just like FDR. It's ridiculous. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you about uh, regarding the child tax credit is, you know, I, the, I want the child tax credit to be permanent. It's going to improve the lives of so many people. I wish that it was um, a little more robust so it isn't just pulling half of children out of poverty, but nonetheless, it's a good, it's a good part um, of his proposal. And I hope it is permanent. But, you know, one other thing that's lacking is a proposal that is a little more universal, right? Like there are plenty of people, especially beginning with like the millennial generation who have opted not to have children as a result of the economic pressures um, in society. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think that the universal piece is really critical and important. So the, the point that I've been trying to stress is that it's true that we're seeing the dam breaking a little bit on the question of social spending. But what we're not seeing is some of the hallmarks of social democracy, which are the establishment of universal, permanent social programs, public, you know, tax funded social programs that are intended to enshrine certain basic, you know, needs, certain basic necessities as social rights. Um, 
So for example, the ability to like afford being able to have a family, um, setting up programs to enshrine that as a social right for the entire populace. I mean, until we start seeing that kind of thing happen from the Biden administration, I don't even think that we can start saying, we can say that um, he's moving towards social democracy. Um, and I also want to say that I want to bring us back to the several points, the planks of neoliberalism that I mentioned. Um, you know, one of them is austerity, like I said, and then you've got privatization, deregulation, and opposition to organized labor. Imagine if you're the capitalist class, which one of those is the easiest to sort of bend on? If you're having a crisis and if there's like, you know, a pressure from the left wing and if there's some sort of like um, class dealignment or realignment happening and things are up in the air, which of those do you feel most comfortable um, yielding on? It's probably going to be austerity because think about the implications for capital of, of privatization, i.e. literally taking away um, their right to own you know, productive enterprises, um, opposition to organized labor, so letting workers organize, and deregulation, sort of like strangling their ability to perform certain activities from the government. Uh, clearly, social spending is going to be like the easiest one to, hit, to fork over if you're in a position where you feel like you need to do that. Um, so I, I guess I would be hesitant to say that we're seeing the first domino fall um, which I think is what some of the breathless cover coverage has sort of implied. And instead, I want us to think a little bit more critically about this being a potentially um, savvy maneuver to kind of like rescue capital in a moment of crisis by throwing people a bone and also stimulating the economy, which of course is good for certain sectors of capital. Um, that said, I do want to, I think that maybe I'm glossing over one potential explanation, which is worth throwing into the mix. And I don't think it's entirely wrong, which is that the left wing political insurgencies probably have had a lot to do with this. So we, we know that the sort of the type of austerity that was dominant all the way up to and through the 2008 financial crisis, yielding that very pitiful stimulus package from the Obama administration, it's not the same anymore. And it's not just the Biden administration. I mean, the CARES Act was, you know, um, considerably bigger than the government, the federal government's response to the 2008 financial crisis. So we know that something is changing. Um, but yeah, I'm just not sure that we're seeing a major um, sea change here on the rest of, of neoliberalism. And I also want to emphasize your point about international policy, because if those are the four planks of neoliberalism, then the purpose is to protect them not only at home, but abroad. And so it sort of naturally entails a military program to protect corporate interests abroad as well. Yeah. Speaking of uh, left-wing insurgencies, you wrote a book with Michael Utrecht called Bigger Than Bernie. We have a graphic for it. It's out in paperback this week. Go get it. Um, I want to ask, um, why, why did you decide to write that book? Um, and what, like, what is the point that you're trying to make? I mean, of course, it's Bigger Than Bernie, although we love Bernie. We all love Bernie. Bernie's great. But like, what, is, what is the state of, of the American left from your point of view as someone who wrote a book about the American left um, today? So to answer your first question as to why Micah and I decided to write the book, you know, originally we had had, Micah had had the idea to just write a book about Bernie because it seemed like aside from the ones written by Bernie, there weren't actually any. Um, but as we were, um, as we were conceiving of the idea, it just seemed obvious to us that timing wise, this book was going to come out around the time that the Bernie Sanders 2020 presidential campaign was gonna be over. Um, obviously, I wanna say that there would have been 
it would have been unjustifiable to throw all of our weight behind the Bernie Sanders 2020 primary campaign if it wasn't possible for him to have won the primary and then go on to win the general. So we had to hold that open as a possibility as we were writing this book. Um, and we, we sort of like wove that possibility throughout the book. Um, but I think we all know that it was like not super likely. Like if you had to say whether he was going to be president or not going to be president when he announced that he was running for president again, I think anybody would have probably guessed that he was probably not going to be president. So we wanted to write a book that would um, collect some of the best ideas about how the left should operate in the post-Bernie landscape. Um, from the left and, and sort of put them in one place um, to get people thinking. So kind of provide like a roadmap or a guide for how the left should sort of orient and comport itself post-Bernie. Um, and we also wanted to be able to function pretty well if it turned out that Bernie Sanders was going to actually be president, which caused us, the, the, the fact that we didn't know which one of those was going to happen really forced us to kind of boil it down to basics, like a basic set of principles for how the left should engage in politics. Um, and these are not ideas that are unique to us. I mean, Micah and I come out of, you know, a shared political tradition and we're in conversation with a lot of people on the organized left. And so a lot of these ideas really kind of reflect the, what we think are like the, the best and most coherent opinions about how the left should be behaving. And then we tried to sprinkle it with real world examples from the organized left, from the organized socialist left during the Bernie era, which I guess you could say started in 2015 and ended in 2020. Um, so we have real world examples of, you know, um, left political insurgencies and um, of socialists, you know, making inroads into organized labor to grow it and transform it and so on. So that was the basic idea behind the book. As for um, the book's outlook, well, we made the argument in the book that the left is on much better footing now than it was before Bernie Sanders decided to run for president. And I think that's undeniably true even still. But of course, we had to write this incredibly long preface to the paperback edition of the book, which just came out because the book was published in like April 2020, I believe. And obviously, a lot has changed since then. Um, you know, we had we we sort of tried to take stock of everything from the twin public and um, econ public health and economic crises to like the George Floyd uprising to the way that the um, presidential election rolled out. So you can read that in the new preface. But one thing that remains unchanged is our sort of like basic contention that the left is on better footing than it was before. Um, that is not an argument to say that the left is on the brink of victory. Um, I've noticed in today's broadcast a sort of like a somewhat resigned tone. And I think it's like understandable, like things are not going that great. I think we should just be honest about the fact that things are not going that great at the moment. Um, but we have more opportunities for organization than we had before. Even if the balance of power is pretty bad, the truth is that we have, for example, a mass membership organization that is a socialist organization that is DSA. Um, and we have you know, public support for a minimum program that is actually consistent with socialist politics provided by the Bernie Sanders campaign, which seems to be persisting. Um, and it's our job to sort of like help it persist. That includes things like Medicare for all, tuition-free public college and trade school, Green New Deal, and so on. Um, and so things are looking pretty bad 
uh, in some ways, but also better for the left than they did before, and certainly better than they did, you know, in the latter part of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, when McCarthyism had essentially torn the American left asunder, and you know, labor labor unions had been ground down with no real hope of revitalization, and so on. What do you make of, um, you know, some of the divisions that people notice on, let's say, social media or whatever among uh, the left, right? Like there's obviously there seems to be one group that seems to be hyper focused on cults of personality or the likability of certain members of Congress. uh, And then that leads to all sorts of divisions and factions. And how important do you think it is to try to mend uh, those conflicts? Uh, Are they important at all? That's a really good question. I would say that we should understand the conflicts as being symptomatic of some bad habits on the left that arguably may be somewhat endemic to the left. And the, the best that we can do is to suppress rather than eliminate them. So the kinds of bad habits that I'm talking about are like an emphasis on individual morality. Um, sometimes you you see that expressed in, for example, um, you know, an emphasis on like ethical consumption. That's a, that's a big one on the left. Uh, another one is mm-hmm. like interpersonal behavior, like whether or not you're being sort of politically correct in your interpersonal behavior. So like an emphasis on like microaggressions, things like that is sort of being the terminus point for thinking about your politics. I would group all of that under uh, the sort of like individualized understanding of left politics. Um, and that is a something that it's hard to really scrub from the left because the truth of the matter is that most people arrive to left politics because they experienced moral outrage, understandable moral outrage at the state of our society. And so they're bringing that with them. And so you get a lot of, you get a lot of individual moralizing on the left. Um, and when we're at a low point when we don't have like a big shared struggle that we're all working on, for example, the Bernie campaign, or when it feels a little bit hopeless, um, because we keep getting our asses kicked in one way or another, um, or when or when we're idle, when there's just doesn't seem like there's much to do, um, then some of the bad habits uh, start to really rear their head. And I think that's one of them. And I think it's a thread that you can see throughout a lot of the um, a lot of the like scuffles that are the interleft scuffles that are happening right now. Another one, another bad habit on the left is a kind of, and it's, this is constant, this is not a new phenomenon, this goes all the way, all the way back, is a kind of celebration of political marginality as being actually a sign of rectitude. Um, so the idea being that, you know, uh, to be unpopular is to have like, to have an unpopular, but kind of extreme idea that is correct is to demonstrate that you're really ahead of the curve. Um, I think that's very connected with the kind of individual morality piece, Um, but it's really common on the left. And I think that ultimately what that results in in a lot of cases is a a kind of like rejection of um, of the mandate to engage in any kind of mass politics. It's like, I don't really care if people agree with me because I'm right. Um, And it's something that I think we were able to suppress pretty well during the Bernie era Um, because Bernie Sanders was actually making things popular. He was like, he was um, picking demands and articulating those demands in a way that really connected with ordinary people um, and showed us how possible that was. But I think right now you're starting to see a creep back in to left discourse. Um, 
of this particular bad habit, this kind of like obsession with um, like ma like maximal demands um, and a sort of dis dismissal of um, any kind of responsibility to, to connect with ordinary people. Um, that's a problem. And then there's a third, the third really bad habit is of the left is kind of like um, when, when people are feeling hopeless, it kind of, this is on a completely other side of the spectrum, the political spectrum is a kind of like hyper pragmatism that's actually born out of like, hopelessness um mm. it's kind of like a hopelessness masquerading as a kind of like maturity um um or like we're the adults in the room and we we can't you know that's completely ridiculous so somewhere you want to like calibrate between the last two kind of bad habits that i said the sort of like maximalist and like hyper minimalist approaches to like crafting demands and communicating with people our, our values so basically the that's a long monologue that is meant to convey to you that i think that there are some problems that are kind of endemic to the left and have always been there and they're cultural problems on the left and we whipped our shell we whipped ourselves into pretty good shape during the bernie era and i think it remains to be seen whether or not will stay in good shape, but I think we have a decent shot. I don't think we should freak out just because the left is doing what the left often does. Um, on social media, obviously exacerbates it. Um, I do think that in we actually have like spaces where people are more serious and are approaching each other in more good faith than ever before. And we should just like invest in building and expanding those spaces. Yeah, I always, uh, whenever there's like, you know, someone's decrying the modern social media factionalism of the left, I always think about like the Spanish Civil War and like the insane factionalism that existed in the middle of, well, the bombs are falling and they're still like arguing over, you know, whatever. Uh, and, um, uh, but I, I, you know, you mentioned the Bernie campaign and how it served as a sort of unifying principle. And it, for many of us, it was so invigorating because it finally felt like we had a political home. Um, we'd never really felt at home with the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is absolutely hostile to us. The Bernie campaign was kind of this independent organization, for lack of a better term, that served uh, as a vehicle for our political activity and our political imagination and our political kind of hopes and dreams. Um, but the Bernie campaign is no more. Bernie himself is still active and, you know, he's involved in, you know, making the uh, stimulus package better than it would have been had it, had he not been there and things like that. So he's still active, but there is no more Bernie campaign. What do you what do you think going forward? Those of us on the left have to do in, in, in with regards to our political engagement, especially vis-a-vis -vis the Democratic Party, kind of our you know the thing that we got to deal with in some way um but is 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 also just openly hostile to us <laughs> yeah i think that you really touched on something important um this is something that we say in the preface to the paperback edition that just came out um it it was it was it was an idea that we had toyed with at the time, but it became very clear in the aftermath of the Bernie campaign in 2020. Is that the campaign was actually, and I think in 2020 more so than in 2016, was actually serving in some ways the function in an ad hoc manner of an independent political party. So what I mean by that is that historically speaking, socialists have found two institutions to be critical for advancing socialist struggle and working class struggle, and those are the union, which we've discussed a lot, which you guys discussed a lot on, on this broadcast already, and, and then the party, the a party that exists to advance the interests of the working class contra the interests of the capitalist class. It is not a sort of like class conciliatory party, 
right? Um, it's not trying to triangulate between those two things like the Democratic Party does. Um, so uh, we don't have an independent working class party in the United States, which has made everything very difficult for us. It makes it very difficult for us to um, um, advance our politics because often we have to do so through the apparatus of a party that is actually saying the opposite. Other elements of it of this like giant, you know, behemoth are actually saying the opposite thing and in many cases trying to crush us, grind us down and eliminate us from the political sphere. Um, but the Bernie Sanders campaign kind of showed us a little bit what it would be like to some extent to have an independent political party. And what I mean by that is that if you look at what the purpose of an independent political party would be, it would be to, you know, develop a distinct platform and agenda one that is um, ambitious enough to raise people's expectations, but also achievable enough to make them feel like um, like change is actually possible. Bernie Sanders' campaign did that. Um, uh, a political formation that was very distinct from and could go toe to toe with other political formations. Well, the Bernie Sanders campaign was besieged from all sides and it was like obviously um, a, a thing unto itself um, and gave us an opportunity to like sort of identify our people and identify the other people. And that's kind of what the purpose of a political party would be as well. Um, and then there's another element to this, which is that an independent political party of, of the working class or a socialist political party would give, would activate supporters and give them the opportunity to develop skills, to develop, um, you know, into leaders um, and would actually also create organization um, through, through the actual campaigning, you'd create durable organization. And I think Sanders campaign showed us what that might look like to some extent. Um, and then also to unite disparate elements of the left, I mean, within reason, right? But to unite people who don't see eye to eye on every single issue that pertains to left politics. I think the Sanders campaign literally did all four of those. Um, and those are some of the main functions of a political party. So it sort of felt, it felt like we had a political party for a brief moment in time. And then of course, bam, it's over and rude awakening. We actually don't have any such thing. And it would have been very nice to have a party of our own that throughout the pandemic, I mean, can you imagine? Not to mention to have a party that was explicitly dedicated to advancing the agenda of, um, you know, like divest, invest the, the sort of demands that were coming out of the George Floyd uprising to sort of like build up the social welfare state instead of the carceral state. Um, and then we didn't have a party going into the rest of 2020, which was a historic and completely insane year. And that felt really bad. And I think that's why that's partly why people are feeling very demoralized. It's because we saw a glimpse into a possible future and then it was revealed to be, be a mirage and it kind of evaporated. Um, but I hope that if people can actually, if they agree with what I'm saying, if you agree with what I'm saying, then it'll help you feel less bad because the truth of the matter is that we never had that to begin with. That was just a, that was just a taste of what could be if we actually start to you know, put in some el elbow grease and like really organize toward some kind of independent political formation if it's possible. And I'm not saying that we should start an independent party tomorrow because actually I think that's completely impossible. And I think that we should move toward our own kind of like political body in a way that doesn't relegate us to immediate obscurity and marginality in view of the like incredibly repressive laws that we have around parties in the United States. Um, but I do think that it's the goal. I mean, I think that historically socialist movements have found over and over again that the parties are very critically important for good reason. 
Megan, um, if you have time, I would love for you to stay with us to discuss what we have prepped for our SALT segment, uh, because I think that your insights would be truly appreciated um, in basically debunking the ridiculous talking points uh, that were expressed in an op-ed for The Hill. Um, And it has everything to do with you know, some of the propaganda that employers have been using regarding the issue of choice, you know, the issue of being able to set your own hours or we're not going to give you, um, you know, a limited amount of vacation time. You get to take as much time as you want off. But in reality, it's it's a trap to make you feel like crap if you do take time off. So um, in this particular case, and by the way, are you able to stay? I don't want to assume you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. So yes. um, yeah. it's it's this op-ed that was written by uh, Patrice Anwuka. She's the director for the Center of Economic Opportunity. Sounds like a great mm. name for an organization. Usually means that it's the opposite of what it's expressing. But she, um, you know, she writes this piece about how, you know, what women love, women specifically, is the ability to set their own hours and. Mm. That's the reason why they're actually huge supporters, proponents of gig work, right? And I'm going to read a few excerpts and we can kind of discuss. So uh, she writes, even before COVID-19 flexibility was of utmost importance to women working in the gig economy, a majority preferred to be independent contractors, not employees of the companies that contract their services. This is a very different, uh, this is very different from the narrative that Organized labor, union-backed lawmakers, journalists, and activist groups are pushing. They characterize big tech companies like Uber and Amazon as plantations run by slave drivers exploiting the slaves. And then she (laughs) continues by saying, nothing stirs Americans' emotions more than slavery and analogies, no matter how wrong and inappropriate. Opponents also describe independent contracting work through the gig economy as anti-worker, but there's nothing more pro-worker than controlling 100% of your labor schedule and decision-making. But of course, Mm. as we know, uh, they don't control 100% of their labor. Um, So care to uh, weigh in on that? Oh my God, where to start? This is this is an amazing document, to be honest, because I think that it's uh, I think it's an evolution. It kind of represents an evolution in um, the messaging, right? Like the this is a this is a fun new twist. The idea that it's actually pro woman because flexibility is something that women need. And I want to actually unpack that a little bit. It's true that women actually um, often do find themselves in positions where um, more than men um, they would like to be able to be flexible to take care of things that arise. But that's because we have a completely eviscerated social safety net and there's been no attention paid on the on the part of like policy design to like how to make it possible for a working class woman to also like have a family. Right. So like, yeah, there are lots of working class women who are in a position where they like need to like jet off to like take care of something that has arisen with their like family or home life. But that's not something that we should, you know, celebrate. It's something that we should actually fix through policy design. Um, Childcare, for example, like, yeah, if you can't find secure childcare, then yes, it would be helpful for you to be able to choose when you work. But obviously, we should fix that by making sure that everybody has access to affordable and high quality childcare, not by making it possible for women to not to have complete and total, quote unquote, flexibility, i.e. no protection at their job, so that they can get paid shit and also rush off to take care of their children that the state is refusing to take care of. Like it's clearly, it's clearly the wrong way to think about solving this problem. And another issue that I have about this like 
flexibility thing. I mean, you guys were mentioning if you have unlimited PTO, then you essentially have to rely on your individual skills as a negotiator and your confidence that you're not going to get fired and your confidence that the boss likes you in order to actually take vacation. I worked mm -hmm. um, in an, in like a, it was a media tech startup place where we did have unlimited PTO, but it was also because it wasn't unionized and it was like VC funded. And you know, these things are very fragile. Like people were getting picked off left and right. So like during the brief time that I worked there, I saw many people get fired. Um, and you know, if you're watching people get fired all around you and you have unlimited PTO, like, are you really going to go up to your boss and ask them if you can, or tell them that you're planning on taking a long vacation? Um, like you guys said, no, but I also want to add an additional factor to this, which is that like sexism is a real thing. And like women's confidence is often lower, especially when interacting with male bosses. And so like the, uh, the likelihood that women are going to be able to feel confident and comfortable, like I think it's lower than that of their male coworkers in many cases. And so the flexibility thing doesn't really jive with what we know about women's behavior when it comes to like negotiating for themselves in the absence of just like set standard rules in the workplace. Um, and there's other stuff in this article, you guys sent it to me earlier and my job was like on the floor when I was reading it. Um, <laughs> but it just, it just flies in the face of what we know about um, union, about about unionization and women's work during the pandemic, I mean, it's completely cherry picked. It is true that women women have been, unlike the 2008 financial crisis where men were more likely to lose their employment this time around because of the nature of the crisis, women have been, right, Amanda? Women um, have been, uh, exactly, here we go. Um, women have been more likely to be laid off because of the sectors that women are more likely to work in. But if you actually break that down, the highly unionized sectors are the ones where women have not been laid off. So like in healthcare and education and you know, like other sort of public sector work, things like that, women have not been laid off en masse, but women have been laid off in other women heavy industries where there are low unionization rates. And so that's just the truth. I mean, it's just factual. You can go look up the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's all out there. But this article does a clever little um, switcheroo by focusing on specific industries at the expense of the others. So it's very, it's a very expertly and finely calibrated piece of corporate propaganda. Mm -hmm. Let me mansplain a couple things to you, pals. <laughs> uh, women are more flexible than men. Everybody knows that. Some women can put their legs over their head. I mean, I can barely touch my toes, you know? Like, it's just everybody knows this. Patrice is 100% correct. I mean, you, you ladies just don't know what you're talking about. That's true. <laughs> yeah, and look, really what this op-ed was meant to do was to basically rally Americans against uh, the passage of the PRO Act, which as it stands today with how broken um, our Congress is, especially in the Senate, it's unlikely going to it's it's unlikely to pass. But nonetheless, she argues that the uh, PRO Act aims to energize organized labor, which has seen membership numbers plummet among private sector workers. However, if passed, the bill will lead to independent contractors losing income and flexible work opportunities, as many did when California passed similar legislation. Now, mm. as we know, uh, the ballot initiative Prop 22 passed, which undid those California regulations. And we immediately started hearing stories from um, gig economy workers who actually noticed uh, less uh, pay uh, as soon as uh, these this new category of workers uh, was implemented, right? And 
One thing that's also missing from this discussion is the fact that while, yes, I'm sure women do want, not just women, women and men want more flexibility in regard to their work hours, um, they certainly want to be able to take paid time off in order to give birth, have a few months with the baby, make sure that, you know, she's ready to get back to work. You don't get that under the system that this woman is an advocate for. You get no benefits um, in, in most cases, really. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this is you guys picked a good one to like roast for this segment, because like I said, I do think it represents some kind of evolution. Um, concern trolling on behalf of women to sell an anti-labor. I mean, it's not like it's never been done before, but it's expertly done here. Um, and also, Scale, woke, could you pull woke, up that woke last? conservatism. Right, yeah, exactly. That's what it is. Can you pull up the last slide that you had up there? I had something to say, but now it's it's. Oh, right. Look at this sentence. Um, the Pro Act aims to energize organized labor, which has seen membership numbers plummet among private sector workers. This is again the same thing that I was talking about with um, the way that the New York Times changed their headline. It's like, yeah. yeah, well, the reason that's happened is because corporations have gone on a vicious offensive and have successfully ground workers down to a position of like insecurity and demoralization. Um, but it kind of implies that workers have you know, chosen, like you've seen membership numbers plummet in the private sector because workers are finding that unions are really just like, they're kind of a thing of the past and they're not really something that enhances their life. And so that's why membership numbers are plummeting. That's why they put the, they sprinkle those kinds of um, clauses into, into these, um, I don't know, like propagandistic texts that they're constantly pumping out. Uh, I don't know. I liked yeah. it. I think she's, you know, I think she's got a bright future <laughs> in the, the take in the take economy. <laughs> I mean, she are, she's she's got a bright present in the take economy. She's a frequent guest on Fox News, Fox Business News, mm. PBS programs, and she hosts a column called uh, "The New Agenda for Black Women" on Newsmax.com. So, yes. oh wow, nice, cool, yeah, Man. yeah. So you you get where you know she's coming from uh, with this type of perspective. But you know, she did. I, I need to be fair. She did address the issue of benefits. Um, so one final slide for you, where she argues that independent contractors understand that they forego benefits and wage guarantees that employees enjoy, such as overtime, paid leave, and minimum wages. Yet they choose mm. to be independent for other reasons. Yeah. I mean, I this like that she's speaking on behalf of people, you know, just right, like right, no one specific. Right. She's like, I am going to claim that this is what gig economy workers like. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. It's a trade. It's a trade off, right? She's that's yeah. well, that's, that's the constant, um, that's the well, the Prop 22 campaign that happened in California. Obviously, that was the constant messaging all the way through was like, look, yeah, you're not going to get all of these like perks, these like little perks that you get, you know, um, by being an employee. Um, but it's a trade-off and you'll get more independence yeah. and more flexibility. I mean, that's just over and over again. That's what they say. Yeah. yeah you get a ping pong table. You don't get healthcare. We get a ping pong table in the break room and like, sure. you know, that way you stay in shape uh, and you don't have to use healthcare ever. There you go. Right. It's, it's right. an yeah. easy trade-off. Megan Day, thank you as always. She's a staff writer over at Jacobin and please check out her book, uh, Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. Megan, thank you again for joining us. Thank you guys so much. I'll catch you another time. Bye. See you soon. Love All right. Megan we Day. got uh, Megan's awesome. I love her. Prolific. Uh, and, she writes, she writes yeah. like thousands of pieces uh, for Jacobin. They're all incredibly sharp. I don't know how she does it. Um, I like struggle to write one segment a week and she's just 
cranking out these takes. Um, yeah, love Megan Day. Always great. So let's bring on Kale. We got about 10 minutes left. We're going to end a little early today, guys, but we do want to take some of your super chat questions and comments. So now's the time to do it. Yes, uh, this is the time. Um, some people already sent in some super chat questions, uh, or not questions, they sent in super chats. We need the questions. We appreciate the money always, but um, we want to we wanna give you our thoughts that uh, we're, we're here. This is your moment, truly. We're just here for you. Um, uh, Patrick earlier had written, uh, would management be okay with us surveilling them? Uh, we need democratic workplaces, Patrick. That's, you know, I, I think we all agree with that, um, at least on this show. Uh, and then earlier also, um, well, there was just, there was a number of other super chats, I think, that um, some of them are stickers. I don't know how the stickers work, but we, we appreciate the stickers. This is our producer, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't know how the, doesn't know how the, his own platform works. <laughs> I I get like the I'm just seeing all of this like the Terminator like it's extremely just it's like just code running in front of me so I don't see your pretty pictures. It's the but, Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, wh while we wait for super chat questions to come in, I did want to quickly note that um, Kale and I were on Ben Burgess's stream uh, last it Wednesday. Go? It was so much fun. Okay. I was on for like I think it was three hours or maybe close to wow. three hours. Um, <laughs> And I loved every minute of it. I can't believe how much I enjoyed that conversation. But um, yes, it was a discussion about The Shining, uh, Stanley Kubrick's movie. And uh, I got my husband to agree to have a Stanley Kubrick day with me today. So we're going to watch a bunch of Stanley Kubrick movies, Whoa! starting Hell with yeah. Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. Starting with Eyes Wide Shut. Well, maybe, I mean, I think maybe after that, you and your husband are going to get distracted from the following Stanley Kubrick <laughs> movies and get involved maybe. in some, some weird shit. But uh, the, uh, I'm, what'd you think of The Shining? Not to like, you don't have to spend three hours explaining to me, but what'd you think? Good, bad, ugly? I, uh, I loved it. I really loved it. I thought it was a great psychological thriller. And what I especially loved about it was that it, it's really up for interpretation. So I, I love that you, the symbolism can be interpreted in so many different ways. Um, I think we did a good job breaking it down and sharing our thoughts during that stream. But it was the kind of movie that actually gets you to think. It's not just there for entertainment's sake. And I always loved that kind of film. So I really yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, nice. it's maybe the most overanalyzed movie of all time. And yes. uh, as Anna knows, there's... There's a whole documentary yeah, about exactly. it. Yeah. I watched it. Yeah, yeah I watched right. it. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm like yeah. I don't want to go on that stream and set because I'm not a professional movie critic. I'm like, no. I didn't want to make a fool out of myself. This is a whole new world for me. So I wanted to come correct. I wanted to come with a little bit of homework. So I watched Room 237, which yeah. there were parts of that documentary that were like, they came across as a little unhinged. I'm going to keep it real. But there were some good theories and good um good catches uh in that documentary stuff that i didn't notice like when i watched the movie yeah yeah i i mean as as anna knows i mean i i think some of it is just obviously plainly in there and then some stuff i think is uh it's not like there's just there's no way to, to justify yeah. certain interpretations or arguments and i actually think it it ends up uh obscuring the real dynamics that are going on like under the surface yeah. of the movie because and, and like I said this and if you want to get the full take you should watch our movie review on Ben Burgess's show mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. but it's that uh there there really is something like there's the surface narrative of what's going on in the movie and there is I think something real 
that is not explicit. It's not stated in the movie, but it's clearly thematically there and it really hits people psychologically. And so they end up searching for something because they know there's something else there. They know that when they finish, they go, I think I get it or I liked it, but there, I'm, I, I need to come back to it to, to really understand it. And, and then there's this never ending searching process. And, and so I, I gave my take on, on why exactly I think that is, but, um, you what should... other movies are you watching today, Anna? You got Eyes Wide Shut. What do you got? What do you got on the on the docket? I'm open to suggestions. Um, I, that was I the think... movie that, like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, Eyes Wide Shut. 100%. I've seen Clockwork also... Orange. I've seen Full Metal yeah. Jacket. Uh, what yeah. else? Uh, Paths of Glory, uh, 1957, starring Kirk Douglas. One of the great anti-war movies ever. Um, I, I don't know how the hell he did that world war, like the battle scene in, in, in that movie, like feels so real, even yeah. though it was done in the 50s. Um, I would say Paths of Glory for sure. Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to mm. Appreciate and Love the Bomb, is so funny. You know, like it's just, it's crazy how freaking funny it is. Like they, they don't make comedies as funny as that today. I would say that one uh, as well. I would put those two, I think, at the top. You know, uh, uh, of of a movie marathon for Kubrick. Well, I don't know what do you. Well, that's because Doctor Strangelove. It's a nervous laughter the entire time because yeah. the joke is that like we're on the, the precipice of just everything <laughs> yeah. ending. Yeah, so it's it, it's really funny, um, but it's uncomfortably funny, and so I think that's again why it's effective. That it like it's like Peter Sellers is incredible playing three different roles in it yeah. and just kind of showing George at all C. levels. Scott is amazing. Yeah. They're all the, 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 and um, everything about that movie is just, is just incredible. Like it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, I, I want to throw out there. You have to watch 2001, a space odyssey at some point. Cause yeah, that is like, it's a different thing. Would, it's, it's very different. Totally different. Totally yeah. different thing. Did you see the, the? Did you see? I saw like the news in Spain that like uh, one of those like uh, um, kind of like s- structures appeared like on a on a beach in <laughs> a know, monolith, like near Barcelona. Yeah, a monolith. And then apparently they've been appearing. Like it must be some kind of like elaborate troll from some from they've been appearing like in, in other places. Um, but yeah, the two thousand one. I would say two thousand one. You should watch it like on its own. Yeah, you know. Whereas mm-hmm. like if you watched Paths of Glory, Strange Love and like eyes wide shut like you those are movies that you can like absorb uh in a much more like kind of normal way i would say 2000 mm. is incredible uh 2001 is incredible but it's like i would you know i would set that aside and watch right. it on its own well, because i think with, it's with so all... funny nando makes suggestions and then i get obsessive about the suggestion like like <laughs> I, robert I caro's books <laughs> right i know he's like he's like have you ever heard of robert caro i'm like no who is that oh he's written these great books on lbj and i've like read all of them like it's just i don't know you you have good suggestions so <laughs> i'll definitely check these movies out well i think and just the last thought on this because we should get to questions in a second and we will um but I mean, with all of Kubrick's movie, I mean, he just, he is objectively one of the best filmmakers ever, like who's yes. ever done the medium. But, uh, and, and so I think with all of his movies there, there's some kind of obvious plot that anyone can observe and follow. And then there's always, I think, like important thematic elements that are there and you can find them if you look for them, like we did with The Shining. Uh, but it, it takes a little bit of work sometimes. And so, and like 2001 is a lot of work because there's very little dialogue 
Um, yeah. It's like a long movie and it's a lot of just watching uh, actions happening, going through space. Um, we should, we'll talk about that at some point, I'm sure. But um, anyways, uh, do either of you own Bitcoin? No, I don't. No. Short answer is no. All right. Yeah. Um, can Jacobin make my semi-normie life simpler and become the American Madrigon? Uh, Madrigon, for those who don't know, is a worker-controlled uh, cooperative firm. It's one of the larger firms in Spain, uh, and the workers manage and run it, um, and they make a profit. Uh, would that not begin a slow growth of left organization on many fronts? It's up to us. We can start manufacturing. Mac Jacobin can start manufacturing like shoes or something. You know, we can make a magazine, uh, uh, the YouTube shows, some podcasts, and we can just start manufacturing. We should just start making something. Uh, that way we can do it. I mean, we do make idea. things. Jack- Jacobin makes things. You can a subscribe magazine. to the magazine. <laughs> yeah. How hard could it be if you're making a magazine? Just make some shoes. It's not that I just use the same the same tools. You know, just make a make a shoes. <laughs> Yeah, we could start. Yeah, I think Bosco would probably like a basketball line of shoes. Just uh... there you go. Yeah, <laughs> we we just gotta find like the one NBA player who's like a Bernie bro and get mm. have have him promote the shoes. Um, this will mm. make Bosco's life. Like, I'm, I'm Bosco would like drop everything to like do this. I think um, we there's a there's an we can get article. big Waz 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 is an, is a sneaker expert. We can get him to design yeah. the shoe. Uh, Bosker will organize the means of production to manufacture the shoes and, and we can, we'll find some NBA player to promote them and then we'll, yeah, we can do it. There's, um, I don't know if people are familiar, but there is uh, a Jacobin article from a while back with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in Jacobin. Um, mm-hmm. So you should, you should Maybe read that. get him. Yeah. We'll work on it. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the, the biggest thing with co-ops, um, obviously I think at least with, my understanding of what I hope socialism will be in some future is that you will have more and more worker controlled firms that workers should in fact own uh, the tools that they work with and the the land that they work on. And um, there's a couple, there's technical challenges like with anything. Um, I think the biggest thing is that the biggest challenge presently today is that uh, the fact is that any worker controlled firm is within a market. And so they're going to end up having to compete against other firms. And so when you're successful, you get something like Madrigone, which is, again, it, it becomes kind of the gold standard. But then there's other stories of, of worker co-ops that uh, end up, the, the workers end up becoming their own managers effectively. And so either they slack in productivity because they don't have like a dictator on their back, um, which objectively from like a humanistic level is good, but it's bad from like the fact that they're still a company need to make a profit because then they lose out against their competitors. Um, Or they end up uh, all just kind of working each other uh, to death, that they're all kind of at each other. It becomes even more competitive within the firm. So, I mean, there's, and again, these are symptomatic of the rules of competition under capitalism. Like these, this isn't like people morally failed in doing something good. It's, like this, these are the challenges I think we have to figure out. Like when and where workers should be pursuing co-ops is a question that has a lot to do with, you know, what are the conditions that their uh, that their firm is within, that they're organizing within, that um, they're competing within in a market. Um, so uh, it, it's super complex. Um, 
And uh, maybe this is all just a long-winded defense of, of Boscar remaining, uh, maintaining control over his means of production. <laughs> <laughs> so, You're just a lackey. You're just a lackey. Uh, hey, I, got, I have a safe job now. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Here's a, another question from C-Sound who asks us, how do I make friends with socialists in my town without using the internet? Turn your friends into socialists. That's what I do. He did it with me. I mean, with the help of Michael Brooks, that's for sure. Yeah. Blast, Freaking Nando. You know. God, I remember Slither getting into in these there. debates with you, like before our fusion episodes. And I'd be like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But you were freaking <laughs> planting that seed. And it's just... Damn it. This was what, back in 2016, right? Five Mm -hmm. years ago. Jesus. How time Mm -hmm. flies. I know. Five years ago. That was five years ago. I know. I know. It blows your mind. Um... But yeah, I think I think that that's actually a really great strategy. Um, and, you know, we would get it like, but also you got to understand what your friends like and don't like. So I love debating. So when Nando would would basically engage in debates with me, I wouldn't I wouldn't get offended by it. I would disagree with him, or at least I thought I was disagreeing with him, but he planted a seed. And so when you plant a seed, what happens is your friends or the person you're debating with We'll come across articles, content, world events, whatever it is. And their talking point is like germinating. (laughs) And you're like starting to think about it from their perspective. That's exactly what happened with um, the conversations that I would have with Nando and and Michael Brooks. The only way to convince people is to let them convince themselves. You're never going to say the perfect combination of words that's going to like completely just blow their mind because when when people are arguing or debating or whatever, like they, the natural inclination is to, is to harden, you know? And so you're never gonna, you're never going to convince someone in the moment, um, by using like impregnable logic or brilliant oratory or whatever. Um, the only thing you can do is seed a little bit of doubt in their mind. And then Mm -hmm. the best thing you can do is walk away. Yeah, it's so true. Because then the then then it's that that process and it takes time and it's not it's not like linear or anything like that. But that's the only mm-hmm. way to convince someone is to plant a seed of doubt in their mind, and then eventually hope that that will that they themselves will reach those conclusions. Uh, but if you fight with someone, if you argue with someone, I mean, you might convince others who are watching, you know, um, especially if you're like funny and charming. Uh, but you will never convince the person in front of you. That's just that's just human nature is to just like reject whatever it is. Right. And that's where, I mean, good organizers will tell you that most of what you end up doing as an organizer is listen to others. That you you might open a conversation, but then you're hearing from them what matters to them, what they're thinking about, what their issues are. Uh, and, you know usually in an organizing conversation, you have the goal of trying to get them to commit to something. But when it's just your friends, I mean, you should be listening to your friends and you should know what matters to them. And uh, being a socialist is having a socialist worldview where you understand the way the world works is a certain particular way. And, and we understand the way the world works today is, is what we call capitalism. And so mm-hmm. the more that you understand it and the more that you're open to listening to your friends about uh, what they're dealing with or what they're thinking about, and then you can, you can kind of naturally interject these things. And, and like Nando's saying, you know, you add a little bit here or there and say, well, you know, I mean, you know, I think 
that this situation is the way it is because of this thing. And that's how I understand it. And, you know, let it kind of blossom from there and not be too forceful all at once. You know, and also my word of advice, avoid the culture war shit and wherever possible, tie it back to their work situation. So like, you know, say they work somewhere, you know, just explain to them or, you know, plant the seed in their doubt that by definition, whatever it is they're getting paid, whatever the number is, you know, just you don't even have to like ask them what it is. Just like imagine it's $10 that if they're getting paid $10, they're delivering in value more than the $10 they're getting paid. Way more. Whoever owns the company. Um and that that's something called profit and that that difference is them being screwed over. And then, you know, let them just let them sit on that for a while and don't go into like an impassioned defense of like canceling Dr. Seuss or whether you should say Dr. Jill Biden uh, or, or just call her like, you know, evil Jill Biden or whatever. Like that, none of that shit matters. Avoid all that shit like the plague. Just tie it back to their work and you'll be OK. Yep. Yeah, I agree. All right. Thank you, Kale. Um, and thank you to everyone who contributed um, with Super Chats. Uh, you guys can always ask us questions throughout the show, and we'll try to get to them, um, as many of them as possible. But um, that does it for today's show. Uh, Nando, any final words before we wrap? No, very, very great show. Uh, had a lot of fun. Can't wait for next week. All right. We'll definitely see you guys next week. And as always, if you haven't subscribed to this channel yet, please do so um, and share the video. It's a great way to help us um, build the audience for this show um, and plant some more seeds, right? Get some more people to think about what they're experiencing at the workplace from a perspective that's not often um, expressed in most media. So uh, thank you for watching and we'll see you guys next week with another episode of Weekends. 